it is important that we look at God's word, and I'll, I'll try to be, I'll try as hard as I can, no promises, be a little brief. My wife made me promise, and she's the one keeping the nursery this morning. So um, I'll try to be, try to be a little, little more brief. We've, throughout this year, we've been studying the four-part story uh, creation and rebellion and redemption and restoration. And we're coming to uh, the end of this story, which culminates in us seeing creation and rebellion and redemption being made, being made whole again in uh, God's restoration, all things being made new. Last week, uh, if you were with us, and it's okay if you weren't, last week Dave showed us in Revelation uh, chapter 1 this incredible, almost even too big for our minds to conceive, this incredible vision that John had of Jesus. And what we said from that vision is that God promises that he is going to finish what he starts. That's the story of Revelation. That's the culmination of the end of the four-part story. God will finish what he starts, and he's going to finish it through Jesus. That's what we saw last week. This week, I hope we'll see uh, that Jesus is going to use his church to restore this creation, to make it whole, uh, if you will. We'll read from Revelation chapter, uh, chapters 2 and 3, just two of the letters written to the seven churches. I'll encourage you, maybe this afternoon, you can go read the rest of them. I'm going to try to give you a framework by which to understand all of the letters, uh, but I think it'd be helpful and encouraging for you to read uh, all seven letters. It won't take you very long in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Uh, we'll read uh, the first letter to Ephesus and then the last letter to uh, Laodicea. This is God's word, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them out to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn over to chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, and you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. May he write its truths on our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, would you use this word to go deep in our hearts? We ask that by your Spirit uh, you would keep us free from superficial, uh, shallow understanding, but rather you would take us to the places where our only choice this morning is to fall deeper in love with you, Jesus, to confess how much we need you all the more, and to cling to your grace and mercy, which is true in your resurrection. Would you help us to see the beauty of the church, to see the beauty of who we are in the church, and how you're going to use us, Jesus, to make all things new? We ask these things in your name. Amen. If you've ever studied communication or maybe, maybe, not, maybe relational communication, uh, if you've ever looked into any of that or maybe you've been a part of any sort of uh, counseling or premarital counseling or maybe even marital uh, counseling, you may have been told at some point at some time that there are words you should never use in a good and healthy relationship. Can you think of any of those words? Any words that you should never, never use? Always, right? We use these words unknowingly oftentimes, don't we? You always turn this back on me, right? You never help me with this, that, or the other. It's always my fault. You always have to win, right? We, those words kind of slip out of our mouths unknowingly, and we, we're saying things that aren't true about our relationship with the person that we're speaking with. And yet there is one relationship that we can use those words. It's a relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus is always faithful, right? Jesus is never unfaithful. Jesus is always near. We could go on and on and on and on and on throughout the scriptures talking about the always of Jesus. And I think that frames up well what John gives us in these letters to the churches. I think he gives us four always that we can bank on when we talk about Jesus, when we look at his church, and that means the world uh, for us. So four always 
uh, in Jesus' relationship with his church. The first is this. Jesus is always with his church. Look at verse 1 again with me. John sees seven golden lampstands, and we learn at the end of chapter 1 that these lampstands represent the seven churches. Uh, Seven churches that Jesus writes seven letters to. Now, a little bit of background on these churches before we get too far in. These seven churches were located along the Roman postal route in uh, Asia Minor, what is uh, today modern Turkey. These churches were also likely pastored by uh, the Apostle John. And while there are personal and intimate applications for these seven churches in uh, these letters, these churches also represent churches on a larger scale. You may have heard this before. Throughout God's story, from Genesis to Revelation, there's one number that stands out that means the most, isn't it? The number, of seven, the number seven. It means comprehensive completion. And so when John sees seven churches and Jesus tells him, you write a letter to these seven churches, what he's saying is, you write a letter to the churches in Asia Minor specifically, but you also write a letter to the churches throughout history. What is true of these churches is also true of the church throughout history. What is true of these words, what Jesus says to these churches, he also says to us. There's a comprehensiveness uh, to this. What does uh, Jesus actually say to his church? Well, look at verse 1. At the beginning of each of these seven letters, Jesus tells John to write to the angel of the church, and then Jesus links characteristics of himself to each church. Did you notice that? If you went back and looked at what Dave showed us last week, in this glorious vision that John has of Jesus... In chapter 1, what Jesus does is takes individual characteristics of himself and ties those characteristics to each church. Not, there's not a church that has the whole of Jesus, but each church have, has elements of Jesus. They represent Jesus. Everything that John saw in the vision of the risen Christ in chapter 1 now shows up in these churches. It's Jesus assigning his glory to these churches and telling them, your identity is rooted in me. In fact, without me, the church is just a bunch of pious, maybe not so pious people right? And yet Jesus says from Genesis to Revelation, these churches are rooted in me. You get a piece of me, not the whole. He says it differently in the gospel of John chapter 17. You might remember Jesus' high priestly prayer where he's praying to the Father for his people. Jesus says it this way, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It's throughout Scripture. Paul picks up on the same thing, buried with Christ, alive uh, with Christ, uh, whole with Christ, crucified with Christ, raised to new life with Christ, 
hidden in Christ. You see, the identity of the church is only found uh, in Jesus, and that's what he's communicating to his churches uh, in verse 1. Jesus describes himself as walking amongst the lampstands. Did you see that? He's not some aloof, disconnected deity uh, that is that is out there somewhere. No, Jesus is the intense, personal, intimate lover of his church, and he is with her, walking amongst her. Jesus is always with his church. Now, let's stop for just a minute and think, what would this mean? Dave said this last week, and and it's so true. If you've heard the book of Revelation taught, and you've heard it taught disconnected from these churches, then you've been misled. I'm really sorry for that. But you've been, you've been misled. What would this letter, these letters to these churches, what would this mean for those people who are suffering persecution? Persecution like we've never known who are suffering persecution, who are under political oppression from Rome and even from the Jews. They're wrestling with sin, just like you and I wrestle with sin. They're teetering on societal pressures. That probably sounds a little familiar. They're they're waffling under philosophical and doctrinal struggles. They're lamenting even uh, the fighting that goes on within the church. Jesus says, I am with you. That means the world, doesn't it? Paul, I I think, helps us get into the the depths of what Jesus is actually trying to get us to understand. You see, Paul, he he had this this unique space to be able to know uh, that his good was worthless. In his letter to the Galatians chapter 2, Paul saw Jesus as the only ever good man to die and take his place on the cross. And so he says to his Galatian friends, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? Christ who lives in me, and now the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What is Paul saying? Jesus is not only with me, but I am in him. Friends, look around these chairs. Look around in these chairs. Has someone come alongside you and been kind and compassionate and prayerful for you in a really hard season? Jesus is always with his church. Has someone uh, walked alongside you in a rut of sin that you've been stuck in for a while? Jesus is always with his church. You needed a shoulder to cry on when you were scared of what was going to happen next. Jesus is always with his church. Has, have you ever come here one Sunday morning and just been beat up and downtrodden and frustrated and just woe is me. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit, you hear the word of the Lord, you come partake of his sacraments and life is breathed back into you. Jesus is always with his church. 
You see how that works? The people in this room cannot be Jesus to you. But they can look like him. And they can smell like him. (laughs) And they can point you to him so that you radiate uh, his goodness. Jesus is always with his church. Second, Jesus always celebrates our good. When the words I know are said uh, with like celebratory anticipation um, and appreciation, they mean something. Like have you ever celebrated with some friends and they're like, I know, I know, it's so great, isn't it? That's what Jesus does for his church. Most of the seven letters begin with Jesus saying, I know. I know. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2, 315 that we read. Don't let this slip by you. Jesus is telling his church, "I, I know exactly and intimately who you are and what you're doing. Ephesus, you you can see this in verse 2. Ephesus, you're untiring and relentless in your work. Smyrna, you're brave in your suffering. Pergamum, you're fearless. You're a fearless witness for me. How'd you like that to be said of you? You're a fearless witness for me. Thyatira, you're encouraging and you eagerly are discipling others. Philadelphia, you're gutsy in your steadfastness is what Jesus says. Can you hear the the thoughtfulness and the kindness of Jesus? This is a picture of his heart. He died to pay the penalty of the sins and brokenness of the people who make up these churches. Having redeemed them from death to life, he is celebrating and encouraging and affirming the good that he sees in them. This is Jesus saying to his church, I love you. I see you. I'm thankful for you. I'm proud of you. I'm encouraged by you. I love seeing growth in you. You see, Jesus always celebrates our good. Isn't it great to have a Savior who looks down on us and sees everything about us, our sin, our struggle, and he chooses to say, I love this in you. Man, that's a kind Savior. What would Jesus say about us? What would Jesus say about our church? I know, Christ Prez, you love my gospel. You love to hear uh, the good news about uh, me. You desire deep and meaningful relationships built around me. I know that you hunger for my good news. I know that you hear my good news faithfully. I know that you want to see my church full and grow. I know you want to see my mercy go out throughout Greenville and Winterville. I know I see you radiating my goodness in your occupations. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging? Jesus knows how to celebrate and affirm the good. Friends, listen, if Jesus takes the time with his churches, this is the last they'll hear from him. If Jesus takes the time, (coughs) excuse me, if Jesus takes the time 
with his churches to pause and say, I see myself in you and I want you to know it. If Jesus takes that time to write this down in these letters so that these churches know in some measure our Savior is proud of us, how much more then could we ask him on a daily basis, Father, give me eyes to see Jesus in others so that I could go and tell them? Has has anyone ever come to you and said, hey, I saw you giving up up your time to, to listen intimately and care and hug. And I just want you to know I, I, that was, I saw Jesus in you yesterday. Anybody ever done that for you? I saw how you took the time to sacrifice and serve. There were some ladies here putting up these, these beautiful decorations this week. I saw Jesus in them this week. They were sacrificing their time, serving to make our church look beautiful for Christmas. Some of you serve in Bible studies. Some of you care for people so well, you're so thoughtful with your questions. What if we took the time to say, hey, I just need you to know. I need you to know that I saw Jesus in you this morning. What might that do for our church? What might that do for brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage them and build them up as we all struggle with sin? How encouraging. If Jesus takes the time to always celebrate our good, then so can we. Third, Jesus always reminds us of our distractions. And for as much as Jesus celebrates his good in his church, He also knows how easily distracted we can be, right? And he's more than content, especially with five of these seven churches, uh, to give them some correction, some reformation, uh, if you will. Ephesus had abandoned their first zealous love for Jesus. Pergamum was indifferent uh, towards false teaching. Uh, Thyatira was accepting of immorality, especially sexual, sexual immorality. Sardis was just blah, just apathetic. They didn't do anything. And Laodicea leaned in toward worldliness more than they did uh, the Spirit. Jesus is always eager to graciously discipline and correct his church so that they're growing out of distractions and into uh, his love. This is, this is what we mean when, if you've been with us uh, throughout this sermon series, we ha- we've had these five statements that kind of sum up the Bible as a whole. And one of those statements you might remember is Jesus actually accomplished something, Right? He actually is a literal savior. Jesus died to free us from distractions and that hold uh, that they have on our lives. His atonement for our distractions towards God really frees us to grow in our affections towards him. Maybe this will resonate uh, with some of you. These are some of the things that that I felt uh, this week. Jesus reminded me of some of my blind spots and enabled me to repent and believe, right? Jesus reminds us of the danger of half-truths so that we're able to embrace honesty. You see how we can get distracted with these things? Jesus reminds us of our anger and arrogance and enables us to grow in patience and humility, 
Jesus reminds us of our insecurities and enables us to grow in trusting him. You see how that works? Those distractions Jesus died for. And as he lives, he longs that our lust for those distractions would fade and that our enthrallment with him would flourish. That's why he says what he says in, in chapter 319. We read it. For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent because Jesus' love is actually chasing after you. We don't think about when sin is made clear to us, whether by way we've hurt God or hurt another, that's usually kind of like a, uh, right? And some of that's fair. But what John's teaching us in Revelation is that that's actually Jesus showing you your distraction so that you re repent of it and run away from it. Isn't that, that's grace. That's what we call grace. Jesus always reminds us of our distractions. He always reminds us of our distractions. He always celebrates our good. He's always with us. And then last, and I promise I'll be quick. Jesus ends each letter, if you go and read, he ends each letter with this beautiful refrain or promise, a promise that is meant to motivate us to uh, endure. Jesus tells Ephesus, you will eat of the tree of life. Jesus tells Smyrna, you'll receive the crown of life. Pergamum, you'll receive the white stone and eternal manna. Thyatira, you'll receive the morning star. Sardis, you'll be clothed in the white garments. Philadelphia, you'll be a pillar in the temple. Laodicea, you will eat and rule with Christ. Man, there are so many eternal and heavenly promises that are only secured for us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in those mysteries even that's hard to understand. But how do you think these churches heard this? How do you think these churches heard these promises? They just heard about how distracted they were, right? And that's sometimes hard to hear, as we said, but Jesus follows that with what? Promises of his grace. We did everything to lose the promises in favor of God and can do nothing to regain those promises in favor. And Jesus on the cross bears the curse of our sin and gives us his favor, his place, his sonship, his promise of eternity. And then he got up out of the grave to guarantee it to assure us that it would happen. Friends, these promises aren't just good ideas. They're not just hopeful ideas. They're cemented in the resurrection of Jesus. They're already true for you. They're waiting to be revealed. You see, conquering with our resurrected Savior means that we trust he is near. Jesus is always in his church. Conquering with Jesus means that we see and know Jesus celebrates the good in us. And he reminds us of our distractions. And he promises us that he is coming. Friends, isn't that the beauty of the gospel? The beauty of the church? Such that we can, 
as church members, as Christ's prayers, such that we can embrace these always and walk out these doors with that hope and that assurance and that confidence that Jesus is going to do something with us, not only internally, but for the world to renew us as well. That's what brings us to the table.